Hey, Kel. Hey, Sarah. So I need to tell you my latest adventures in shopping. Ooh, I can't wait to hear. You might be after you hear what I bought. So I'm sitting in Target and I'm looking at the pill boxes that are available in Target. And I realize that I'm old, right? That I am literally debating pill boxes. Oh, this one is pretty, but this one is more practical. And this one pops out. And the reason I had to buy a pill box is because I had to fit all the pills that I take in one day. I realized that only one of them is actually a prescribed medication. All the rest are over-the-counter supplements or medicines. So I'm buying this pill box that is literally the size of a suitcase. <laughs> I realized that A, I'm old and B, this fits in perfectly with our topic today. That's really funny because we just started using pill boxes at our house too. But one is for my nine-year-old and the other is for my dog. <laughs> but it's the memory thing. Like you don't have to think about it. You just look at it. Did I take it for the day or did I not? Mm-hmm. Did I yeah, give it to just, my dog or did I not? And I just realized that I did not take my medicines today. So maybe that pillbox isn't working and I have to go back to Target and get a new one. But either way, I'm so excited because we're talking about supplements today with a dear old friend of mine and I can't wait to get into it. So um, let's get started. Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Kelly. And this is The Unchosen Fork. And today we have the wonderful Dr. Allison Mondel. Allison Mondel, PhD, MSPH, is an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. She completed her PhD in cancer epidemiology at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, her MSPH at the Emory University Rollins School of Public Health, and her BS in microbiology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She is a member of the Cancer Control and Population Sciences Program at the University of Michigan Rogel Cancer Center. Dr. Mondel studies the role of modifiable risk factors in the etiology of cancer. In particular, she has studied how lifestyle factors and factors related to diet and nutrition, such as micronutrients and lipids, may influence prostate, bladder, and kidney cancers, as well as other genourinary conditions such as benign, it's BPPH, right? BPPH, yeah. <laughs> and how genetic factors may contribute to or modify these associations. More recently, she has become involved in studying head and neck cancer, which is an exciting area of inquiry as it remains an understudied cancer. Dr. Mondel is a co-investigator of the new Michigan Cancer Research and the Environmental MyCares study, which began recruitment in 2022. Allison, thank you so much for being here today. I can call you Allison because I knew you before you were Dr. Mondel, but I can call you Dr. Kelly can also... (laughs) Everyone can call me Allison. <laughs> well, thank you, Allison. We're excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. So, Allison, you have had such a illustrious history in academia, and you've done some amazing things, and you're on the cusp of doing some new amazing things. And we're going to talk about that today. And I want to dive in then to talk about supplements and vitamins and anything else. So, let's hear what you're doing. 
Yeah. So our most recent thing that I've been doing is we just launched a big new cohort study of cancer called the MyCare study, which stands for the Michigan Cancer Research and the Environment Study. We're actually trying to recruit 100,000 Michiganders between the ages of 25 and 44. And we're trying to understand the impact of environmental exposures on risk of cancer. There's a couple of things about it that we're really excited about. One is that we're recruiting kind of a younger population. Most cancer studies recruit older and like middle-aged people. And so we're going to be able to get exposures from earlier in life from these folks which is probably really important and is understudied. You know, people are like, why Michigan? That's a maybe a weird place to do a study. But it's the site of a lot of environmental injustice and a lot of environmental disasters. Everybody is familiar with the Flint water crisis, of course. But there have been historically other issues in Michigan. Michigan is actually one of the highest PFAS levels of any state in the U.S. And we're really excited to be able to do this work. And I think it's going to really contribute to understanding the role of these environmental chemicals and other kinds of environmental risk factors for cancer. So yeah, if think in Michigan and they're 25 to 44, look us up. <laughs> We'd love to have you join. For um, adults between the ages of 25 and 44 who live in Michigan, that's the only the only like enrollment criteria at this point. I was going to ask also if you had to have a diagnosis of cancer or not. We're actually trying to recruit a general population cohort and ask about things that they may have been exposed to when they don't have cancer. And then we're linking with population registries with the state of Michigan. So cancer is a reportable disease. So anybody who gets cancer, it gets reported to the CDC or to the SEER registry at the NIH. So we can link with that and find out if these people who enroll in our study get cancer later on in life. That's great. And how long are you guys expecting to follow these patients? Or I'm sorry, these cohort these participants, yes. The initial recruitment period is six years, but we're going to be following them, you know, kind of indefinitely. Honestly, we do have support from the cancer center to continue to link with the cancer registry over time and, and the the death registry. If people unfortunately do pass away, we'll also be able to find out about that. Very cool. And can you tell our listeners what PFOS is? Oh my gosh, I was going to ask that because I have no clue because I'm dumb. Uh, no, and honestly, um, I mean, yes, I can tell. No, you're not dumb. Yes, I can tell you what it is. And I Are you sure about that? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> this, this podcast has made me rethink my intelligence level quite a bit. I got to tell you. <laughs> it's, it's actually like a group of chemicals. So it's not one chemical. They are per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. And yes, I did just look that up on the internet because I literally never actually have to say the whole thing. So I also am like, oh, PFAS is something. It's a long chemical name. But basically, part of the reason there's a lot of them in Michigan is because they were used as fire retardants. And there are a couple of big Air Force bases in Michigan. And they used to kind of spray them as like flame retardants is my understanding. And they're one of those forever chemicals that um, once it gets into the environment, they don't break down. Wow. Okay. Thank you. I also, Sarah, just for the record, did not know what that was. <laughs> so I wasn't joking earlier. I really do take a handful of pills a day. There's very specific reasons about that. And I'll tell you a little bit about why Kelly and I talk about supplements all the time. So when I got sick, I started taking massive amounts of steroids to address my Hashimoto's encephalitis. I mean, we're talking IV steroids that were like 100 milligrams. It was a massive amount. Got the moon phase, the whole thing, right? I had a friend of mine who is an MP, nurse practitioner, say to me, hey, are you taking calcium? Are you taking vitamin D? This was about a month into taking these massive amount of steroids. And I said, no, nobody told me about it. Like, I mean, I was taking a multivitamin, but I was, you know, like that was about it. And she's like, you might want to talk to your doctor about taking it. 
So I know this is such a loaded phrase, but I literally did my own research online and I was, oh, I should be taking calcium and vitamin D if I'm taking this volume and for this duration of steroids. I had to go back to my doctor and say, hey, should I be doing this? And they said, oh yeah, you totally should. I have to say, I don't get mad a lot about my diagnosis. This was one point that I got furious because it was, I had to ask the question to protect myself from a future consideration. Kelly and I talked about this as well. I wish that we talked about supplements more when you're in your disease that the topic of conversation came up more than just like, oh, you're going to go on this medication. It was just really interesting because like having you on today, like Allison definitely has a viewpoint on this and I'd love to dive in deeper about it. Yeah. So I guess my viewpoint, first of all, is you did exactly the right thing because you asked your doctor about taking these supplements. And I think that's part of my hesitance isn't the right word, right? So I'll say, first of all, that there's really little evidence that supplements do prevent in like healthy general population of folks that taking supplements prevents any kind of chronic disease. Do you guys know what the USPSTF is? That's another acronym I'm going to throw out there. Educate me, please. Okay. It's the United States. I always have to think about it. US, United States Preventive Services Task Force, USPSTF. And you can go to that USPSTF.gov and you can actually look up their recommendations on everything. So they have recommendations for I think about a lot as a cancer researcher, I know a lot about their recommendations for cancer screening, for example. They give recommendations on kinds of things. And the USPSTF is kind of one of the main bodies that gives, of US government bodies that gives out recommendations about these kinds of things. It's important because they have this A, B, C, D, I rating. So A and B ratings means you should probably be doing this. Like A is you definitely should, B is you probably should, C is like, eh, talk to your doctor, and D is don't do this. And then I is like, there's insufficient evidence. A lot of what they put out is an I about supplements. And I'm going to talk about why that is. There's a handful that they recommend against, but really there's just not a lot of evidence that they do much for the general population to prevent like cancer and heart disease. And there's been a couple instances where in fact, we thought it might prevent something and it actually caused something instead. So but I know. And I think that that's the thing is that because of the way supplements are regulated and brought to market, we think of them as being neutral at worst. Like, eh, it might help. Why wouldn't I just go ahead and take it? It probably won't do anything. Mm -hmm. Even if it doesn't help, it just won't do anything to me. Right. And that's not always the case. And so I think that's why I say you did the right thing by asking your doctor. We think of them as being good because they're components of foods generally, like when we think about vitamins, especially. And supplements kind of encompasses a whole range of things, vitamins and minerals, but also like botanicals, like St. John's wort, things like that, that you'll see that aren't really a vitamin or a mineral. They're vitamin or mineral. They're called a botanical, but that's kind of the whole supplement game as all of those things kind of wrapped up in one. But we think of vitamins in particular as being parts of foods that are healthy. Your vitamin C comes from oranges and, you know, your vitamin A and your vitamin D, you know, it's your green leafy veggies and your milk and stuff, right? So we think of them as being good. But when you take them out of the context of the food they come in and give them in these big, big doses, most of the time when you're taking a, a vitamin pill, you're taking way more of that vitamin than you would get in any kind of vegetable that you would eat. You'd have to eat sacks of carrots to get the beta carotene that you're getting in like one pill of beta carotene, right? So it's sacks really a different. Carrots. Whole sacks <laughs> of carrots. That's made me laugh. Okay. <laughs> like a bunny eating in them. So it's it's actually, you know, a bit different. But 
the FDA does regulate them as foods, not as drugs, right? And what that means is, you know, I'm not an expert in FDA regulations, so somebody might come for me. But essentially what that means is they don't have to prove that they do anything before they're brought to market. And they don't have to go through all of the different like trial phases that medications do. When a medication or a drug is being brought to market, the drug companies have to go through like phase one, phase two, phase three trials, which are kind of this series of trials where the early ones are kind of dose finding, like finding the correct dose to give to people that has the effect you want, but doesn't also make people sick. And then you go into larger and larger trials where you actually prove that it treats the disease you're trying to treat. And none of that happens with supplements. There's no research to say what the right dose of a supplement is for anything. If I understand this, if I'm following correctly, it doesn't actually have to prove that it does whatever it's saying that it's doing. Oh, well, now that's another whole thing is that there's actually very strict regulations by the FDA about how they can market supplements and what they can and can't say that they do. So you're actually not allowed to claim, if you're going to sell a supplement, you can't claim that it treats or prevents any disease. But they all have lawyers and they skirt that very carefully, right? So like the way they write it is within the confines of the rules, but it sounds a little bit like sometimes they're saying that. Does that make sense? Um, oh, I'm a marketer. It makes yeah. perfect sense. I've been doing that my whole life. Yeah, it's way, way outside, way outside my zone. But that's kind of the the backstory on supplements. So part of the reason that we that, that we don't have better data, and when I tell you that supplements... There's not a lot of evidence that supplements work to prevent anything in the general population. There's maybe one or two prime examples where that isn't true, right? Where it really has worked. One really good example is folate for neural tube defects. Neural tube defects are things like spina bifida. So birth, birth defects that can happen in babies. And in order to prevent that, you need to have enough folate very early in pregnancy. Like in the first, I believe, again, I'm not a reproductive epidemiologist, but I think in like the first six weeks or something, generally before women know that they're pregnant. And of course, because so many pregnancies are unplanned, women who have an unplanned pregnancy aren't taking prenatal vitamins. So for that reason, the United States and other countries have chosen to fortify their grain products with folate. It's just in the flour supply, essentially. And we have seen like a huge decrease in spina bifida and neural tube defects like that because of that fortification. So that's an example of, and it folate actually may actually prevent cancers and things like that too. So that's an example of supplementation on a wide scale actually preventing something. Wow, you just never know what's in your flour, huh? <laughs> if you like yeah, read a cereal, it's that, like too. all of this extra, it reads like a multivitamin, right? If you look at like a breakfast cereal, because it's fortified with all these extra things. Wait, um, so you're actually saying that Lucky Charms is good for me in some ways? Uh, I can't yeah. eat Lucky Charms anymore, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think I said exactly that, but... <laughs> You're probably not going to understand how marketing works. (laughs) (laughs) So that's kind of going on with supplements, right? Is that we don't, they're brought to market. They don't really have to prove that they do anything. And then there's no impetus to like go back and study them. So essentially then the FDA does monitor them for like adverse events. And so I think we've heard about this with, and I'm going to forget the name of it now. I could go look it up. There's, there's a, there was like a a diet, a, a weight loss supplement that came out like back in the, maybe in the nineties where people were getting heart attacks and stuff from it. And people like reported that it was an over-the-counter botanical kind of thing. And people reported these adverse events and it was pulled from the market. So that's kind of the regulation that happens. It's basically if people report adverse events from taking a supplement, then the FDA will act and pull it, but they don't have to prove that it's safe or that it does anything really before it goes to market. 
you don't even know if the quantities that are in it are actually in it sometimes. Is that correct? I will have to go remind myself this is the the regulation piece of it isn't my forte, but I believe they inspect things kind of the way they do food plants and the, the way they inspect kind of the food supply, right? It's like every so often they'll go check kind of a thing, but it's not like a constant monitoring, if that makes sense. But yeah, it may not have exactly in it what it says. Also, it may not be bioavailable, which means there may be 500 milligrams of calcium in there, but it doesn't mean that it's in a way that your body can fully absorb those 500 milligrams. Do you see what I'm saying? I had to learn that, that your body can physically reaches a limit on how much it can absorb in a certain vitamin at a time. When I was taking the calcium, I was taking whatever it was. It was like a, an absorbent amount. And like, A, I learned you could OD on calcium, which is crazy. <laughs> And then the second thing was, is that I learned that whatever you're taking, whatever you should get in a day, you can't take it all at once because your body literally can't absorb it. And that was mind blowing. No one tells you this, right? Like you don't know this. You well, learn it. It's true. And also your genetic background probably matters. There can be two different people who take the exact same pill, but your body metabolizes it differently. And so the amount that you mm -hmm. actually end up getting to your, I don't know, if you're trying to prevent breast cancer, the amount that gets to your breast tissue in the end could be very different than the person next to you who took the same thing, for example. That's what makes all of this very complicated, right? So when we say there's insufficient evidence, that just means that there's no big effect in the general population. Now, Sarah, in in your case, in a person who is taking another medication and therefore needs more of this vitamin in a person who is deficient for some reason, sure, maybe they do need it. Maybe that would prevent some kind of problem for that person, right? But when you're studying, and I'm going to talk about this from the point of view of cancer, because I think a lot of people are, are very interested in preventing cancer, and that's my area, it's really hard to study this. Like, how many people do you think you would need in a, like, if you were going to do a supplement study about preventing in healthy people to prevent getting cancer? Like, how many people would you want to enroll in a study to study that? A lot. Uh, <laughs> so like a hundred thousand? Because I'm the, I'm the most distant from it, from studies and stuff. Okay, let me guess. If I am doing a statistically significant amount, I guess I would want maybe unhealthy people. I think I'd want like a thousand people enrolled. Mm -mm. Maybe. You're going to need like tens of thousands. <laughs> right? That's Good thing I'm not in charge of any kind of research whatsoever. <laughs> we think of cancer as being common because most of us know someone who's had it, right? But at a population level, it's actually rare in the sense of it just doesn't occur that frequently. If you get a bunch of healthy people together, you're not going to get that many cases of cancer that occur in those people in a certain amount of time. So if, if I want to do a trial and I want to take healthy people and give half of them a supplement and half of them a placebo and then wait and see who gets cancer, that's kind of the gold standard of a study to figure out if something really has a causal effect. If the supplement is causing someone to not get cancer, you're going to need at least tens of thousands of people. If you have 25,000 people, you're probably going to be able to study like all cancer lumped together as an outcome. Maybe you can look at breast or prostate by itself but you're not going to be able to look at individual types of cancer, especially rarer cancers. You're just not going to have enough cases to do anything with that information. You know, we talk about cancer as if it's one thing, and it's of course not. Each different cancer site is really a different disease. And lumping them together, you probably won't see things if they're there. Say there is an effect of a vitamin on the kind of brain cancer that your husband has, Kelly. If you put him into a study and you put him in with like the thousands of 
breast and prostate and colon and lung cancers. And he's like the one brain cancer, one of like a handful of brain cancer people in there. And there is really an effect for brain cancer, but not for these other cancers. You're just not going to see it. It's like you've washed it out by including all these other people in people with cancer. When really, if you just looked at people who have that specific brain cancer, you might actually see that a vitamin is doing some good. So it's very difficult to do these studies correctly. Those kinds of trials are crazy expensive. Specifically, if you want to look at incidence of uh, like new cases of cancer occurring in healthy people, you need huge numbers of people. You probably need to give them the supplement for many, many years. So making sure that people stay in your study and take your supplement so that you can find the answer is incredibly expensive. No one's paying for it. Like drug companies pay for drug trials because they have to have the data in order to get their drug FDA approved and make money off of it. Well, the supplement companies, their supplements already on a shelf. They're making money. Why would they spend millions and millions of dollars on a trial? <laughs> no one's going to do that. You could do trials in patients. So if you took patients being treated for a cancer and then your outcome would be progression or, you know, whether those patients died of their disease or had bad outcomes of some kind, you could do that. And that would be a smaller study because the outcome, unfortunately, is more common, right? If you're already taking people who have cancer and you're looking at progression, for example, that's going to be a much more common outcome in that group than getting cancer is in healthy people. So that is in some ways an easier study to do. But, you know, these people are already being enrolled usually in some sort of drug trial. They're being offered, you know, things like that. And so it, it is difficult to do these studies. So I want to back up just a little bit because we were talking about selecting a supplement. If you are wanting to just say take a multivitamin or choose a supplement that your doctor has prescribed, what is the best way to really know which one to take? I've been told before to try to find something that's been certified by a third party because at least then it's not just the company that's making the money that's looking at it. That's right. Um, what, what would you have to offer for that? I don't have a lot more insight than that about like which exact supplement to take. Uh, if you've already decided, say, I want to take vitamin C, like which one should you take? I mean, I think you probably want to go with, again, like something that's been certified by a third party that always is a good option and just probably kind of a more major company, I would say, because then more people are taking it. And if something's wrong, if there are adverse events, more people are going to report it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm often looking for the ones that have the least amount of ingredients too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think if that's important to you, certainly that's that's a reasonable approach to take. My expertise is more in the area of like, should you be taking the supplement at all? Does it actually have an effect on a disease? And so an example would be looking at vitamin D and cancer. Tons of work has been done on vitamin D because if you put vitamin D on cells or cancer cells in a Petri dish, it seems to do all kinds of things biologically that should be good for cancer or bad for kids, should prevent cancer from growing and spreading, right? <laughs> Not good for cancer, good for people so that they don't end up with cancer. But you know, people are more complicated than that, right? Squirting something on cells in a petri dish is not the same as taking something in a human who's free living and doing all kinds of other things. You know, we really thought that vitamin D might prevent a lot of cancers. That, and the trouble we get into is that if you're not going to do a trial, which I just kind of explained why that's really hard to do, then you are doing an observational study where you're doing kind of what we're doing. 
doing in, in my cares, right? You might be getting a whole group of people together who don't have cancer and kind of asking them, okay, do you take a supplement? Do you take a supplement? Do you? And asking them to self-report what kind of supplements they take, then seeing who gets cancer over time. The trouble is, I mean, you guys can probably already imagine like what kind of person is more likely to take a vitamin supplement? What else are they likely doing or not doing? They likely had the money to take yeah, a supplement. Absolutely. They probably are higher socioeconomic status, which means they maybe have a higher education level. And we know that those kinds of social determinants of health are associated with all kinds of chronic disease, including cancer. That also probably is doing more preventive, preventative techniques. Yeah. They're eating healthier. They're obviously concerned about what they're putting in their body. Maybe they're eating organic food. Maybe they're just eating more fruits and vegetables, which of course also goes along with having more money. They're probably going in for their cancer screenings. They're probably going to the doctor regularly. So if they have high cholesterol, maybe they're, maybe they're getting a statin. They're getting a blood pressure med if they need it. They probably don't smoke. All kinds of things that track along with that behavior that could also be influencing their cancer risk. So I don't want to poo-poo observational research. It's my bread and butter. It's what I do. Because a lot of things that we think, I mean, in our study of my cares that we're doing, you can't randomize some people to be exposed to PFOS and some people not. Like that's unethical. You can't, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Let's not do you, that. You shouldn't want to do that, actually. There are some things you can't study you know, adverse things you cannot study in a randomized trial format, even though it's kind of the best design. So we have a lot of techniques in epidemiology. That's what we go to school for for a long time, at least in part, is to figure out how to deal with all of those potential confounding factors is what we call them. It's hard to do well. Yeah. And you let me know if this is true. I heard that self-reporting is really hard because people might report more beneficial. They want to do the right thing on their self-report where it might be different than what they actually do. Is that true? I read that somewhere. And maybe it depends I'm on the thing you're asking about me. And, and there's a lot of techniques of like how you ask these questions to get more honest answers. Survey design and survey implementation are entire areas of science that people can specialize in and to try to get the right kinds of answers from people. With supplements, honestly, I would just be more concerned about most of the cancer cohort studies that exist right now. When they recruited people, they were like, say, 45 to 75 years old. And then they followed them over time. These are healthy people, then they're going to follow them over time to see if they get cancer. And they're giving them a questionnaire when they're 45, which is approximately how old I am right now. And they say, are you taking a vitamin D supplement? Well, right now, no, but I have in the past. And when is my vitamin D level important for my cancer risk? Is it when I'm 45? Mm -hmm. For some cancers, we know that better than for others. Breast cancer is one where we really do know that there are critical windows of exposure, right? And those are maybe in utero, which we have very little information about. Is you can't ask somebody, when you were in utero, was your mother taking a vitamin D supplement? Like you're not. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine that conversation with my mom? I'd be like, mom, remember in the seventies when you were smoking and drinking <laughs> while you were pregnant with me? Were you also taking vitamin D? Just yeah. let me know. Thanks. Let me know. Just, yeah, let me, yeah. Let, me, let me know. That is uh, not, not great. But what about adolescence during breast development? When breast tissue begins to develop, that is a critical window of exposure because the cells are rapidly dividing, differentiating, changing. And anytime you get cell divisions there, you can have DNA stuff go wrong. And so if you're exposed to something that affects your DNA at that time, when you're getting a lot of cell divisions, then that can be a time when that's a critical window. Pregnancy is another critical window for breast cancer because there's a lot of breast development that's happening at that time. 
Are you citing stuff that is out there about vitamin D and breast cancer? Because I don't know this. So this is not about vitamin D necessarily. This is just about our understanding of breast biology. So we know that take whatever it is off the table. If you ask, like smoking, right? It may not matter if you smoke when you're 45. It might matter if you smoked when you were pregnant or if you smoked when you were developing breast tissue as an adolescent. Mm. So if you take someone at 45 and ask them, do you smoke? And they're like, nope, sure don't. You might get the wrong answer. You might not be asking the right question. Maybe you should be asking, did you smoke while you were pregnant? Did you smoke while you were an adolescent? Very hard to get those kinds of answers when you're recruiting people when they're older. So you're explaining to us how difficult all this research is and why we are constantly saying on this podcast that more research is needed. Or why you might say, when we looked at a study of 50-year-olds and asked them about their current supplement use, their current supplement use was not associated with their future risk of breast cancer. We didn't ask them. Then what they don't write in the paper is we didn't ask them if they were taking vitamin D when they were going through adolescence, because that might actually be the moment when their exposure to vitamin D was important. So there's a lot of reasons the window of exposure might be very Mm -hmm. important. And if you don't ask exactly the right question, you might get the wrong answer, right? You're you're misclassifying their exposure. You're saying someone was or was not exposed to, say, a vitamin, but you're not asking about the right moment in their life. And mm-hmm. for most cancers, we don't really know what that right moment is. Because of and- the way puberty and breast development works during pregnancy, we have some more clues about breast cancer than we do about other cancers. That is, that's why I brought it up, because it's a good example of a cancer where we do have some evidence that there are these important windows, but those windows probably exist for other cancers. We just don't know what they are necessarily. And I want to just point out that that itself was probably a discovery. Like that was something that this epidemiology research over the years, because you guys had to discover that the fact that there are these windows over the years. Yeah, that is, yeah, that is, that is true. And we're still learning, right? And we're still learning how to subdivide these outcomes. And we now know, again, I'm going to say breast cancer because it's one where we we know this quite well already. And the reason we know is because there are a lot of breast cancers, right? It is the most commonly diagnosed cancer in women. There are quite a few cases. And so it is one of the ones where we have more data just because we have more people to study who have it. We're getting there for some of these other cancers, but rarer cancers are tough nuts to crack because we just don't have as many people. I mean, thankfully, right? We don't want people to have cancer, obviously, but we don't have as many people who have these rare cancers to enroll in studies and do this work. What I was going to say is that breast cancer is a good example of when we're kind of nailed down that there are these subtypes, right? Have you guys heard of like triple negative breast cancer or ER pop, PR positive or any of that? I oh, have. <laughs> I read a lot. Sarah hasn't. I mean, I just wait for Kelly to tell me the important stuff. That's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) So we used to just put all breast cancer together. And it turns out that when you do that, most of the data you have is for a, a subtype of breast cancer called luminal A. And that's because it is the most commonly diagnosed. So if like you take any group of, you know, sort of randomly chosen breast cancers, like 70%, I think, are going to be the subtype. And that is generally one that has, that expresses both estrogen and progesterone receptors in the tumor. That's important because you can actually target those receptors with some drugs. There's other subtypes. One is one that expresses another receptor called HER2. Actually, those cancers, it used to be bad news if your cancer was a HER2 positive cancer because they are kind of innately a little bit more aggressive and had worse prognosis. 
But we now have a drug called Perceptin that targets those receptors in people who have breast cancer that's HER2 positive. And they actually do quite well now because we have a targeted therapy for that subtype. The really tough ones at this point are the triple negative breast cancers. So that means they do not express ER, PR, or HER2 receptors, which means you've got nothing to target. And they're actually worse in terms of prognosis. So when you say receptors, then if you have a, I I don't know that a lot of our listeners know what that means. Sure. So if you have a receptor, you want something to bind to that receptor, correct? It is a protein on the surface of a cell that then something can come bind to. So an estrogen receptor is a little standing there waiting for an estrogen to come along, a molecule estrogen to come along and bind to it. And same thing with progesterone and HER2, right? They are like little things on the surface of the cell. They're proteins actually on the surface of the cell that bind to these other things. So now we know about that, we can molecularly look at tumor tissue and kind of categorize this tumor, and that will help with treatment decisions. It will give some information on prognosis and that kind of thing. But like, what if vitamin D only, it doesn't actually, we've looked at this, but what if vitamin D only worked for the rarest subtype and you were looking at everything mixed together, you wouldn't know. You know, that's really interesting that you say that because the Hashimoto's encephalitis is pretty rare. I mean, well, it's not pretty rare. It's rare. When we look at research for it, it's typically, like you said, bundled into other autoimmune diseases. There's very little research done just on Hashimoto's encephalitis. I think I know most people in the United States who have it, right? Like at this point, right? So like, you're so right. Like the research is just, unless you're going to have someone study me, which come on, I'm here. Anybody want to study me? I'm happy, happy to donate as much blood as you need. You're absolutely right. They just can't. The money's not there. It's just not there. Like, there's no there there, you know, like, you know, I don't know. Well, and there's just not enough people to study to get a statistically meaningful answer. Well, and then the sad part is, is that just as you were saying with the receptors, right, that's how you target your treatment. Well, when you don't have enough people to study for a disease, even if you do know that a treatment kind of works for something similar, you might have issues with that being covered because it's not proven for that disease. Right. We're kind of getting off of supplements here, but this is true and real things that happen every day. Legislature for covering things through Medicare has to do with what research has been done. Yep. And private insurers usually follow what Medicare says. That's right. Yeah, it is hard. I mean, this is why when, you know, Sarah, you tell me I took vitamin D and it really helped me. When I stand here and say there's not that much evidence that supplements prevent disease, I'm certainly not discounting your experience taking that and having it help you because maybe your genetic background is different than most people. Maybe it's the fact that you have this disease that is rare and nobody has studied it and it really would help. You know, I mean, I think the most important thing is for most people, supplements are probably not doing a lot, but there may be some people for whom they are helping. And we don't have the data yet to back up those anecdotal experiences. So Allison, I'll I'll tell you a little bit about what I did and tell me what you think. Because I think that when you're facing a very difficult diagnosis, one that is, you know, you're trying to do whatever you can to have a positive outcome. Sometimes you do look at, well, this might be neutral or at the worst, you know, maybe a little bit less than neutral, right? I mean, I just went to books Mm -hmm. that were specifically written by physicians. I went to online forums and kind of found things that were talked about a lot. Lots of people talked about it, having the same disease and using those. And that's where I started with the conversation with, with the physician and started that conversation. And, you know, her thought was, 
let's give it a try. If you get into a study, you'll have to have a washout period, mm -hmm. but let's give it a try. And we'll just make sure we watch kidney function. And we had an appointment with the dietitian, talked to the dietitian about it. And that's kind of how we went about it. So I'm just, you I know. I think that's an excellent way to go about it. I really do. I think you should always involve your physician and you should always tell your physician what supplements, minerals, botanicals you are taking. When they ask what medications you are taking, include them. And I'm going to give an example of where this has gone kind of badly awry in the past. Kind of a, a well-known example is St. John's work and transplant patients. And this is an example of where it wasn't like just a little bit less than neutral. It people died. But often when there are drug interactions, like you're not supposed to take two things together because they interact, it's because they both use the same pathway, enzymatic pathway to get metabolized in the body, or one will affect a pathway that the other one uses or something. So what happened, it turns out with St. John's wort is that it actually upregulates, I believe, the enzyme that metabolizes the anti-rejection medication. So when you make that work harder, it was metabolizing away their anti-rejection meds. And so they had a lower dose effectively than they were supposed to have and people lost their organs and died. Oh God. That is an extreme example, right? I am giving an extreme example, but when you take it out of the context of the food that it came in and give it in a huge dose, it acts like a drug not like a food. No matter how it's regulated, that's how it acts in your body. I think talking to the doctor is absolutely critical and really important because especially if you're dealing with a major chronic illness, you're also taking all these other medications too, right? And so if there is anything known about how these things interact, hopefully your doctor will know and tell you, no, don't do that. And then that's why monitoring function is really important because maybe something starts to go wonky and you need to stop taking that supplement. Going back to your point that these <laughs> supplements aren't studied, and we all talked about about how hard that study is. And we say this all the time, but I feel like this is a little bit different. So much more research is needed because we could be doing some serious harm with, with some of the other stuff that we're suggesting. You know, I mean, I don't know what the supplement du jour is. I don't know what what it might be today. I don't but, think it's not D anymore. I think that one was like 10 years ago. Everybody was. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm still taking it. So whatever. <laughs> Vitamin D and calcium. That's my two. But I don't know what whatever it is du jour. But yeah. If there's nothing being looked at, we don't know what's going to happen in 50 years. When we come back to the cohort study of why did you get cancer? Maybe it is because you know what? In my 30s and 40s, I took this supplement and we just don't know right? Like we just, we just won't know. And that's, it's, I mean, it's so I think hard. there's a little bit of hopefulness in that usually they don't bring things to market that have some sort of known biologic effect that is likely to be detrimental. Supplement companies don't want to, it's bad for business. And I, I'm sure people who care about right. people work supplement companies, they don't want to kill people just because they don't want to kill people. But also it's bad for business if you accidentally kill a bunch of people, right? Or make them very sick. So I'm sure that there is some attention paid to that by those companies. I mean, the other thing I would mention to Kelly's point earlier about what do you do? You know, you did this work looking into these things and you were pursuing traditional medicine with an oncologist, surgeon, and also this other path at the same time. I think where you can really get into trouble, people who are experiencing a cancer diagnosis, the diagnosis of some sort of like life-changing chronic illness, really want to hear that they can be cured, that things can be made better. And they are susceptible to people who are not going to be truthful with them and who are trying to, to sell them a bill of goods and to make money off of them, right? And that like is- Like a grass cleanse? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, exactly, right? So there are obviously predatory people out there. People who have just received this news are very susceptible to that. So 
I think you just have to be really careful. If you want to pursue kind of some of the supplement stuff or alternative things or whatever, it's a both and, right? So you need to be seeing a doctor who is pursuing kind of the mainstream treatments and talk to them about potentially adding these in. And there are certainly doctors who are resistant to that and doctors who are open to that, like yours was, Kelly, or your husband's was. But I think it's very important to include those doctors in the conversation and not to kind of just hair off on this path instead. That is what I would say also. We've talked about all the barriers and why it's not studied very often. I have hope, and maybe I'm just a fool, but I have hope that these will start to be studied, that people are interested in this. And I would actually clarify just a little bit. They're studied a ton. Like the amount of publications on vitamins and chronic disease out there are enormous. It's just that they can't study rare diseases, subgroups of people. If you start trying to like divide up by this genotype and this gene. So say I want to look at people who have this rare genotype and look at whether those people taking a supplement influences a rare cancer. That's just impossible, right? You're just cutting up your pie too finely and you end up with just not enough people to study anything. So it is studied, but it is studied a lot in kind of bigger groups. And I guess what I'm saying is that if there are smaller groups of people or specific subgroups of people who, for whom these things really are beneficial, it's going to be very difficult to find that. I follow. Thank you for no um, problem. But clarifying yeah, that. that. There's tons and tons and tons of work on this out there, right? A lot of it is your good work. If I may, one more like minor, less catastrophic example of a supplement not working out or actually doing harm. If anybody knows anybody who smokes, they should not be taking beta carotene because it increases the risk of lung cancer. So Back in the 80s, there had been observational studies, like I talked about, where you just ask people what they eat. And in smokers who ate a lot of like leafy green vegetables and healthy foods like that, their risk of lung cancer, even though they smoked, was lower than smokers who didn't eat those kinds of foods. And so as we did in the 80s, we were like, that's awesome. But you know what? I don't like vegetables. I like brownies. So what if instead of eating those things, I took a pill? (laughs) I can pop a pill. (laughs) What if we did that? Being silly, obviously, but they did a big trial in smokers to look at beta carotene and vitamin E supplementation and whether those things influenced. They were really interested in lung cancer risk, which is why they recruited all smokers, but they looked at all cancers. They stopped the trial early because they were actually seeing that in the beta carotene arm, they were getting more lung cancer. And they've actually worked it out in animal models since then. Weirdly, the animal model for looking at beta carotene and lung cancer is ferrets, of all things. <laughs> not your use, not your use. But yeah, so they were actually did a lot of lab research and and able to show exactly why that happens when you give high dose beta carotene in the context of cigarette smoke exposure, it increases risk of lung cancer. Do you know what I just got a vision of? I just got a vision of a ferret smoking a cigarette (laughs) in the back alley being like the wheel today was just not where it should have been, man. This is a rough day. (laughs) I just had that vision. So, and that is as a smoker, not a secondhand smoke. Well, that brings up again, it's relatively easy to ask someone, do you smoke? How much do you smoke? How many packs a day do you smoke? Smokers know that, right? They know how many packs a day they smoke. They know how long they smoke. They know when they started, right? So you actually get pretty good self-reported data on smoking habits, you know, especially in the 80s when like everybody smoked and nobody was ashamed of it, right? So you got just fine data, no problem. But what questions would you ask someone to find out if they were exposed to secondhand smoke. Because we all have been. Everyone take a moment, think to yourself, everyone can smell cigarette smoke. 
right now in their head. You know what it smells like. You have therefore been exposed to secondhand smoke, but how much? Like more than most people, less? Right. No, I I get that. I guess I was just thinking about the ferret and that would have to be secondhand smoke because it's not sitting there smoking a cigarette, right? Yeah, I think they're actually putting it in. I don't know how they do this. I truly have no idea how you expose the ferret to cigarette smoke, but I can imagine you could put it in a little something environment where you put enough cigarette smoke in there that it actually, I think what we've come to realize is that there is no safe level of exposure to cigarette smoke and secondhand smoke is probably just as, it's not just as bad as smoking cigarettes because you're not exposed to the same dose of smoke as if you were smoking them yourself, but it certainly has the potential to cause the same kinds of problems as smoking. Yeah, hopefully at this point, we pretty much have established that smoking is bad. Like, I would. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's not a lot of absolutes, but like, don't smoke. That's, you know, no, I, don't, that's don't, a don't smoke. That is the and, one yeah. I can probably and, go to. Yeah, and Allison and I have been pitching that for many, 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 many moons. So, is there anything else that you would like us to know about supplements and supplement research? No, I think I think actually we've covered it in, in pretty good detail. I mean, I'm not prying anybody's vitamin D out of their hot little hands, but I just <laughs> it's worth recognizing the worst case scenario is not neutral. They're metabolized in the body the same way that medication is. No one would ever say, hey, you know what really worked for me is one aspirin. So, you know, what would probably work even better is like 50 aspirin, right? Which is almost the logic we use when we think about supplements. You know what's really good for people is carrots. So you know what we should do is we should take that vitamin that's in carrots and give people like 50 times what isn't in carrot. When you think about it that way, and when you recognize that supplements are metabolized through those same exact enzymes, same exact pathways as medicines, like we would never do that. We do it with supplements all the time. So again, I think it's worth recognizing that we should be including physicians in the conversation if you're thinking about taking a supplement. I mean, if your doctor's not willing to listen to you about it, then that's not the right doctor for you. I think having that conversation with a doctor who's willing to listen and and if they're against it, tell you why is reasonable because there could be real reasons. And then I think also, you know, just recognizing that your anecdotal experience might be valid. I mean, it may be that they really are helping you and that the, you're kind of one of those zebras that's mixed in with all the horses that it might actually be really beneficial for you. So, you know, do listen to your own experience, but the evidence is not there to say that, you know, all of those supplements that we see lining the shelves are really doing a great deal for us other than taking our money. And there goes another sponsor. <laughs> 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 Just kidding. We don't have any sponsors. I really appreciate you coming on, Allison, and talking about this. Ellie, do you have a bite size? Bite size. So I do have a bite size. And I have to say that I usually pull these from scholarly articles and try to kind of compare them to multiple different articles. But this one came across popular media last week and floored me that it did. So I thought, why not? We'll give it a shot. <laughs> so this one is a study that's done out of Wake Forest. They collaborated with Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and they gathered a group of older adults and asked them to take either a cocoa extract supplement, a multivitamin, or a placebo. And they followed them for three years. It was a blind study, so that means the researchers didn't know which participants took which of the three. They thought that they would see benefits from using the cocoa extract on cognition. And that was all based off of some other studies that showed some benefits for cardiovascular disease. But actually what they found is for 2,262 of the people that were part of the study, all were 65 and older, they found after following them for 
over three years, their cognitive aging was slowed by 1.8 years compared to those with the placebo. Some of the th- reasons why they think that this could happen because it's in an older population is that population of people may lack some nutrients in their body. They could have chronic disease, something like that. So they're having this multivitamin is helping them with that. But I found that really interesting. It actually just popped across my phone. I have an iPhone. You know, they send those news stories all the time. And I looked at it and I was like, hmm, this is food for thought. Again, it says more studies need to be done. Like we talked about (laughs) earlier, 2002, hang on, 2,262 people is not a ton. But this made me happy that things are being looked at. I had not heard of cocoa extract and cardiovascular disease. And they were trying to then link that to cognition. So I thought that was pretty cool. Does this mean we all get to eat chocolate? Right. <laughs> you enjoy results that, that tell me I can do things I already enjoy doing. Dark yeah, chocolate. I, and I will say this, like dark chocolate is one of the few things I still can eat. So I'm like, I'm like, oh yes, please let it be good for my mm-hmm. heart. But it, you know, it's so funny about that, Kelly, like that. And I was thinking about it in the context of our conversation, more research is always needed. That's what we learn. It could be that we're starting to see a window, right? Like one of the windows that mm-hmm. Allison was talking about, you know, in terms of Alzheimer's, what's the window? What's the window there that's going to influence it, right? So it's, I love this kind of thing because we may not know the implications yet. There might be implications in the future that we're going to see as a thread. And I love that. And what I always try to tell my students too, is this idea of like, it's really easy to write in your paper, but more research is needed because it's uncomfortable sometimes to like try to make a recommendation about something because you don't want to, you don't want to tell people to do the wrong thing, certainly. But I mean, at some point you might have enough information to go ahead and say, probably this is going to be okay, or it's at least not going to hurt people and maybe it'll help. So it's really difficult, you know, as an epidemiologist, the goal of our work is to be able to tell people what they can do to improve their health. It's a difficult balance of like, when do you have enough? When do you know enough to tell people what you think they can and can't do? And that's really hard to decide. It's much easier and much more comfortable to just say, we need more research because we can always do more. We can always find out more. There's always more to know. But when do you know enough? I don't know the answer. There's no, I'm not saying I know the answer to that. It's something that, you know, I think good epidemiologists struggle with throughout their career. Well, and I would say one multivitamin a day, which is what this research is suggesting, right? That's not something that is full of all kinds of things. That's something doctors have been recommending for a long time. That is probably fine. I think we're all pretty pretty cool with like your general multivitamin. Yeah. Yeah. And what I didn't say is they found that multivitamins had an added benefit for older adults who had a history of cardiovascular disease. It's really tricky when you read these things, right? It's very easy to mistake what they were actually looking at because looking at incidents of new disease of any kind in healthy people is actually really different than like preventing a recurrence or changing the outcome in people who already have a disease, right? That is a mistake that my students often make when they're starting to do their lit review for a research project is that they'll just start finding all these studies and it's this wild mix of like incidents and outcome studies. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 you have to two different things. You have to put those into different piles and talk about them in different paragraphs because they're not the same. But it's a very easy mistake to make, even as you know, someone who's received training. I would. I read it on the way home class. from work. So <laughs> in the car at a stoplight. So also doesn't help. Yeah. No. <laughs> Here, <laughs> I had to reread it today at the stoplights. I uh, I do not. I do not advise that activity. No, probably not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not reading while you're driving. That's also good. Yeah, good one. 
This has been an amazing episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Mondel. You're amazing and we appreciate it. And we can't wait to hear how your study goes. Will you come back on and let us know how your study goes? And I will. I'm super excited. We just recruited like 500 people in the last week. We're really starting to take off. So $10 incentive for the first 10,000 people who sign up. And when you complete the questionnaire, you get like a little referral code and you can refer all your friends and family. And if they complete the questionnaire, you get an additional $5 for each person who completes it. So Wow. And that's how you got 500 people in a week. That is a huge amount in a week. Yes. We're very excited about it. That's amazing. And we're going to link that link in our show notes. Um, Thanks again for having me. It was really fun. I love chatting about this stuff. So. Thank you. And thank you, Kelly. You're always amazing. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening to us. If you want to reach out to us, we are on all the socials except for Twitter. I have recently started to put out our TikToks. Go check out our TikToks. We're actually doing TikToks. We're of the times, sort of, not really at all. Anyway, thank you so much. This has been The Unchosen Fork. 